listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, you brought us another great group of guests today. Um, although actually, I want to give a quick shout out to our friend of the podcast, Mark Littlewood, who runs the business of software and is a prior guest because actually Mark connected us to Rita in the first place. And so really excited to have Rita McGrath and Ron Boer here. Rita is a globally recognized expert on innovation and growth and a professor at Columbia Business School. She's the author of multiple best-selling books, including The End of Competitive Advantage and Discovery-Driven Growth, which is widely seen as one of the most important management ideas of the last 30 years. Companies of all types use discovery-driven growth to shape their approach to innovation and transformation. She's also the founder of Valise, a company focused on developing tools to implement the discovery-driven growth approach. With her is Ron. Ron's a seasoned consumer products and retail exec experience at Organizational Transformation. He has held C-level roles at Brickstone, Sears Canada, and Barnes & Noble, and is a partner at Valise. So they are here. We're going to talk about innovation. In fact, we're going to talk more specifically eventually about why professional services firms struggle with innovation so much. So with that, welcome to the show, Rita and Ron. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Pleasure. Let's start at the top. So, you know, Rita, why do companies mess up when they do bold new things? What goes wrong? (laughs) How much time have you got? (laughs) Yeah, you've got seven hours. (laughs) I think the, the core issue is that when you have a very high ratio of assumptions that you're making relative to knowledge that you have. Your main job needs to be reducing that ratio, right, of assumptions relative to knowledge. And so when human beings are trying to process assumptions, we make two fundamental mistakes. So the first problem is we forget them. So, you know, you make a decision six months ago and time goes on and you get busy and, you, you know, you forgot what was on your mind when you made that choice. The second and even more interesting thing is assumptions get turned magically into facts in our minds. And so even though it's just an assumption, <laughs> you, you go charging off, right? And so that's the core, core problem. Now, that, that gets compounded by the way most large organizations go after new things, which is they think it benefits them to have a great big team and all the funding up front and an 18-month rollout plan as though they were doing an incremental product decline extension. When in fact, if you're doing something highly uncertain, that is exactly the wrong way to go about it. What you want is a small team, a small budget, and lots of permission to test things without really strict deadlines. Because you know your main job in the early stages is learning. You know, we were when we were setting this up and talked about it. You also talked about excessive optimism. Talk a little bit about that. That that's another issue that teams have. Is you know that you yeah. know. Well, you know, in a way, it's great, right? Because. Nobody would ever start anything if you actually understood the odds of success in innovation. <laughs> or, right, Bill? I mean, you just you know, curl up in a fetal ball in your closet and not to go anywhere because the odds are very long and most new ideas are bad ones and most new things won't work. So that's just the reality going in. And so you have to have optimism. Otherwise, you would never do anything. But that being said, we all, and you know, you can see this in your personal life, right? You're estimating the cost of doing a home renovation, or you're thinking about how long it's going to take you to get from A to B, or how much time it's actually going to take to prepare for that big meeting. We're just over-optimistic in, in almost everything. And so you want to have the right kind of optimism. So enthusiasm about the problem you're trying to solve, enthusiasm about your vision, but you also want to temper that with, okay, what has to be true? Like, how do I validate what has to be true in a stepwise kind of manner? So I want to go more narrow for a second. So the broad issue around why companies struggle when they do big things, how does the, you know, when you think about a professional services firm, why do they struggle? Is it any different or is it the same issues, just different structures? Well, it's humans, you know, start start with that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. 
Fair point. <laughs> Any business involving humans is going to have many similar problems. I would say with professional services, what you've got is a fascinating progression of specific services. So most new ideas in professional services start in what David Meister has famously called the, the brains area. So new to the world problem, never been seen before. What you want is the best brains on the planet kind of figuring out what this actually means. So the very first business process outsourcing conversation. The ever very had, yeah. first shit, can I do stuff in the cloud conversation, right? The very first, you get the idea. Now, the trouble with that is there's no leverage in it. So what happens is as you get experience with a brains kind of project, and remember, you've got like four smart people in a room, each of them earning fabulous amounts of money, but there's no leverage. So on a one-off basis, it's great, but on a collective firm-wide basis, it's really hard. As you gain experience with that sector, right, that turns into a gray hair problem. So don't worry, we've done this before. You know, 80% of it's going to be the same. We'll customize the last 20% to your particular thing, but basically you can take the ring binder off the you know, the shelf in the supply room, open it up to reorg, and you you have a playbook now. Yes. And then when you get really, really well established, it turns into what I call a procedures problem. And this is like classic Accenture, let's say, right? So you pick up the phone, you say, I want 15,000 14-year-olds on Wednesday to code this thing because we're late on delivery. And they say, fine, okay. <laughs> they reach out to their network, 15,000 worker bees turn up at your office on Wednesday as promised. And so it's on time, on budget, Strictly by the code, if you don't know the answer and you're in the field, you look it up in a book. If the book doesn't have the answer, you ask your boss, but they're very well-defined projects. We, we call those procedure projects. So the procedure projects have fabulous leverage, right? Because you, you know you could have one manager to 28 worker bees, and you could charge each of them out at a high rate. So when you think of the life cycle of a typical professional service offering, it starts out as brains, becomes gray hair, and eventually becomes procedure. Now, the trouble with procedures is they're very easy to copy because they've been completely decoded. And so that's really the life cycle, if you think about it. And so what you find is professional service firms tend to specialize in one or the other. So you'll have some firms that are all about brains, right? Pay us a lot of money to solve some really complex problem. I would say a company like PA Consulting would fall in that category, right? So they do both the engineering and the professional services around the engineering. Build me a bridge with aerodynamically here to unforeseen properties in across this you know thing in Australia. They'll do that for you, right? But hard to scale. McKinsey would be classic for that kind of uh, you know advice. Gray hair. Don't worry, we've seen this before. And of course, Accenture and firms like them, like Infosys and others, would be on that kind of procedures angle. And so the first dilemma that you have with professional service firm offerings is that each of those models has a different cost structure. It has a different way of incenting the people involved with it. It has a different economic logic. And so making that transition from one to the next to the next requires fairly intense change in the systems that you use to manage them. So that's the first problem. Second problem is sorting out the incentives, right? How do you how do you adequately compensate a brain person, right? I mean, this is somebody who could be working on a thing without any tangible results for nine months, a year, two years. I mean, these are really thorny, complex problems. And so how do you adequately account for the contribution that they make? Because if they make a breakthrough, it's a game changer. But they could go on for two or three years without that. So that's hard to consent. And then the second thing I think that's an issue is that these, these models all require doing something different as, as, a, as an idea sort of progresses through the framework. So layer on top of that, the fact that you know, as human beings, we want certainty, we want clarity, we want to know what's going to happen at work today. And, and so you have all the human kind of issues around managing change, managing who has decision rights, who gets to play in that ballpark, what are you incentivizing? And so for professional services in particular, I think these this sort of transition from brains to procedures 
raises very interesting challenges. Rita, are you are you saying that I, I don't want to put words in your mouth? Are you saying you want to. Yeah. <laughs> are you saying that the procedural firms don't innovate, innovate less, or need a different approach to innovation? Oh, I, I think they innovate. I absolutely think they innovate, but it's it's typically innovation that is for a known kind of client with a known set of capabilities. So for example, right. you know, when Accenture figures out how to do business process outsourcing at scale, that's incredibly innovative, right? Yeah. But I know who I'm doing it for and I know how to do it, right? I, I, I've mastered the technologies. Uh, what they don't tend to do is the real blue sky kind of new to the world. You know, what is what is the marriage of chat GPT and robotics and 3D printing mean for the world of just-in-time service delivery. I mean, those kinds of projects don't tend to be the ones that they focus on. Interesting. I mean, out of curiosity, I mean, I, can you think of any firms that really coexist in, in all three layers at once like, or, or even just two layers? Is it even feasible for a firm to kind of marry brains and gray hair or gray hair and procedure? Or is that not even viable? Well, they all try. I mean, yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is you know the, the 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 graveyard of multiple failed projects where firms with a sort of center of gravity in one area try to stretch into another because they do it all the time. I mean, yeah. the guys in the gray hair space look at the you know the leverage the guys in the procedure space make and they they're drooling, right? The guys in the procedure space always look at like I mean, I've had this conversation endlessly with these yep. more procedures oriented firms that want to get into strategy, right? And the reality of a procedures firm is if you're a partner, a decision making partner at a procedures firm. And you get half an hour, like per year, with your CEO of choice. Your option is: Do I try to sell that person a you know two million dollars strategy process project, let's say, or do I want to sell them the twelve million dollar business process outsourcing project? And how am I going to use my half hour? It's not. That's it, a no brainer. So yeah. they they're always trying to kind of get into say strategy because it sounds really sexy, and they talk about it as being the tip of the spear and blah blah blah. It, it very seldom happens in real life. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would say I would say a firm like Accenture uses gray hairs to sell procedures. I've had a lot of experience with them and and I think they will play that card in the way like it is the, yeah, we have seen this before and let me tell you how it's going to go, but they're not trying to sell you that conversation. They're trying to sell you the 15,000, 14 year olds that, that can solve your problem. <laughs> and on the innovation point, I'd say they're very innovative within, you know, kind of a lane, you know, and, and with Accenture, I would look at, I would just say, process IT supply chain, just amazingly innovative. They're really, really good. And if you want to figure out how to take three basis points, you know, out of your packaging system, they'll figure it out for you. They'll help you figure it out. They'll get you there, but that's not going to change your life. It's going to extend some kind of runway and a cost, but it's not going to change your business. Yeah. It's funny, Ron. When I remember when we had the Affordable Care Act roll out and it was going so poorly and they brought Accenture in to fix it. And I was just sitting on the sidelines laughing, going, why didn't we start here? Like out of curiosity, like why did we not start with these guys? Like whose idea was it not to start here? Because like you kind of knew, like if you want to fix this mess, who's going to fix it? They're going to fix it. Did you ever see the viral video that went out about this? No, I did not. Without Accenture getting involved, there was some comedian, and he actually made like a false, like a like a fake ad for for Accenture. Accenture. Headline was Accenture. We get done. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Making the rounds at the firm for quite some time. Oh, well, I can't imagine. Like, like, but it's crazy. All right. So the, I, I love the model. In fact, J- Jeff and I were joking after we got off our pre-call with you last week. I laughed. I was like, I, every time I'm in a firm, the thing I think about is like they have a brains project and they instantly think that, that they should drop it to level three and turn it into procedure and then market it to the world. 
and they try to scale the whole thing crazy. And I'm always and Jeff and always joke always jokes about it. it's like just because you have one project and it went really well, it doesn't mean you can actually operationalize that and do it again and again and again. So and let me let me also remark on that because I've seen this problem a lot in the world of software, and I'm thinking of a professional service firm that developed software around a project, but they developed it on the back of a client engagement. Uh-huh. So the software is very cool, but it really is specific to that client. And so then now they think, oh, well, then they, they hired 10 people for this IT business. They, they decided to split it out as like a separate company. It was going to become a scalable software as a solutions business. They hired a product manager. They hired uh, like, all this cost, right, going after this thing. And they kind of struggle to sell it because it's so specific to the needs of this one client that basically funded it, right? And now they're trying to turn a business out of it. And I, I haven't checked in recently with how it's going, but I suspect not well. But you gave us the perfect segue, right? Like that's the perfect segue because what did they do? They did everything you you just said at the opening not to do, right? They took assumptions and made, turned them into facts, right? They yeah. they avoided low risk tests. They they you know, let's build a team of ten and scale up super fast before we know that there's there's a there there. So so let's talk about that. Let's talk about like let's talk a little bit about this. I guess discovery driven planning, discovery driven growth. Like how do you not do that? How what would be the alternate path they should have taken? in that situation than what they did to Well, it doesn't have to be that. I'm just kind of like, I love that as a segue. So just, just the idea that it's like, it's, it's concrete. You can take it anywhere you want. Obviously. Yeah. So there's two levels that we look at this. In. Yeah. The first level is the corporate level. So how do you deal with the mothership, right? And that's questions like, how do you align your strategy, which supposedly is taking you into the future, your budgets, which are often anchoring you past your project governance system and the way people are rewarded. And if those are out of alignment, which is the norm. You know, your strategy is pulling you into the future. Your budgets are anchoring you past. Your project governance system is a hot mess. I mean, and Ron can speak to this. You know, you got somebody's pet bunny from, you know, two generations ago and nobody sort of stopped and said, why are we still doing it? You know, and then people are rewarded for doing things quite unintentionally. They have absolutely nothing to do with the strategy or the projects that they're supposed to be working. So at the corporate level, that's the huge sort of thing you have to wrestle. At an individual project level, what you do is you say, okay, what would success look like? And I'd love, Ron, to talk about a project that we wrestled with with one of our clients. So what would success look like? Then what is your unit of impact? So if it's a product business, what are you selling? If it's a service business, how many hours are you billing? Or or is it retainer? Or is it, you know, whatever it is. So then by simple, simple math, right, you can work backward into, well, what has to be true for that to happen, right? So if I want to build, I'll make this up, a million-dollar consulting business, and I think I can build that business by selling so many days of consultant time. What do I mark those people up at? Now I know what, so if I want to make a million dollars in profits by marking it up, I now know what my required revenues are. And you can work backward into what we call a reverse income statement. So you're looking at the future and working backward. Then you start with today and you say, okay, well, operationally, what must be true for this thing to work? And you can get very specific about which assumptions you need to test, but it requires discipline. And very few organizations come to that naturally. They wanted to start. They want to get going because that's sexy, right? I mean, it's make the announcement, tell the tell the world, you know, put out the press release rather than sort of, well, why don't we take a couple of months and think about what this really is. So Ron, maybe you could talk about that project we've been trying to kill. <laughs> Let me build on one point also too that I want to talk about kind of what has to be true, but Rita teaches a course at Columbia, which is one of their more famous courses in exec ed, leading strategic growth and change. And every once in a while, she invites me in to, to talk about leadership and transformation and such. And one of the things I say to the people in the class, and these are typically young executives, kind of like director level, maybe some VP levels in, in companies, is when we talk about transformation and, and innovation, you know, they've all 
gotten where they've gotten because they were right, not because they were wrong. Yeah. So they're paid to be right. And when they say things, these criminal things like, I don't know, people look at them and go, well, then why am I paying you? And, th and that's just the reality of life. That's, you know, the human condition, competition. And, you know, when Rita says, you know, a different way to say, I don't know, is like, what if this was true, right? It's a, it's a safer way to ask that, that question. And, and where this leads to is we've had, we have a, a very large global company that we've been working with, and we've done a few projects with them. And we did a, one, the first project we did with them was tragic until it was magic. They couldn't get anything done. And it's a company that, by the way, we met with the most senior person in the innovation group and Rita and I spent a, a day with them and, and Rita very insightfully said to this person, you don't have a governance process. What we really should work on with you is governance. And this person just adamantly and aggressively, and even over dinner with me one-on-one, do not talk about governance anymore. We have a great governance process and we could get wow. this done. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to pretend you know what you're doing. So we start this project, which goes nowhere, goes nowhere, goes nowhere. And then there's a panic two weeks before it's supposed to be done. And we spent two Full weeks working with them to get their board presentation done. Well, this was the board thing, right? I mean, this was this project is going to live or die based on this meeting. Yeah, yeah. So this is a big deal. Right, it's a super big deal. So we work on it for two weeks. We get it done. They get approved. They get massive funding. Then they come back. Go. We want to do another project. We go. No, no, no. You guys need a governance process before we do it. Oh no. <laughs> and I'm like, we're not doing this again. So we read and I talk with, I will try one more time. We write a very detailed proposal that starts with the first thing we have to do is define what success looks like. And they're like, so they, we write this proposal, we get on with the team and they're like, oh, that's a 30 minute meeting. I'm not kidding. That's a 30 minute meeting. We all know what success looks like. I'm like, great. This is going to be so easy. We will just glide to this project. So that would is call it May. <laughs> In the middle of July, they finally said, we can't figure this out. Like they literally <laughs> went, you know, two and a half months and said, time out, it's off the rails. You know, the product was project for the interview says, oh, this is brand new. It's ground up. It's perfect for, and then we find out that team A had already hired people. They were developing apps. They had decided what good looks like. They literally had graphics designed for what the product was going to look like. We haven't even decided what good looks like. We don't even know what a win is. And you've built the app. Like, what are we doing yep. here? So That's it literally stopped after about six weeks. And yeah, about, you know, about almost, yeah, I would say six weeks of meetings where people just can't even agree on if we win, this is what it's going to look. It's amazing. But that's unfortunately common. Yeah. One other thing that is a wrinkle in that project, which I think is a watch out for, for professional services firms is we asked who's working full-time on this. Right. So this is a major strategic initiative for a regional part of a, this big global company who's working full-time on it. There's not one full-time person on the project. And right. you know- Committee though. It's a committee of 12. It was though. a huge committee. I mean, a huge committee. Yep. They got together regularly and ate, I don't know what they eat in that part of the world, but <laughs> ate some nourishing, lovely snacks and had coffee and talked, but no one was full-time driving. So I think a watch out for your friends in professional services firms is who's going to run the innovation process. And this is hard. Because those are not billable hours people. They are doing something that is building something new for the firm, but it's not something you can bill a client for. So in most firms, those are people without any power. They have no clout. They have no decision rights. They have no resources in their control. And so it's very easy for the rest of the firm to just ignore them. 
And that happens so much. I think to exacerbate that behavior in professional services firms is, you know, matrix structure where I get to own this when it's good. I don't have to own it when it's bad. And all decisions are decentralized. Yeah, it's almost an impossible environment in which to really innovate with governance. I have to to share with you a story, a fun story. So two, actually. One was for years, I was was doing a strategy program at Columbia for law firms. So you get all these heads of strategy for law firms or whoever the law firm decided was the head of strategy. So they had a number of different titles. Sometimes they were managing partners, managing directors, blah, 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 blah. And my sort of basic opening salvo for this course was, you, you know, you guys do realize you're working with a business model that has not changed since Charles Dickens's time, right? <laughs> you, know, you need to be prepared for things to change. So that was the first one. But the second one was we were doing a, a, a large professional accounting firm in this case, but they had a consulting arm and accounting arm. And it was very re- decentralized. So you had all the partners had their fiefdoms. So at the top of the house, right, the global CEO of this firm was getting smack right, left, and center from all his buddies that were CEOs of his clients, right? Because they were complaining about, you guys are so decentralized, right? Yeah. So I've got different billing systems. I've got different billing codes. You have mm-hmm. different procurement processes in each of the regions in which you operate. You've got different standards. Right? And they just, it really pisses me off that you guys don't act as a truly global firm. Okay. Fast forward big management meeting. I'm the keynote speaker. This guy's getting up and giving this speech about global this and global that. And we need to be thinking globally. We need to, and his audience, right? These are all senior partners. They've all got, you know, three car garages in the suburbs and kids going to private school. And they're doing very, very well. Thank you very much. They have all the power to actually make decisions about what happens on the ground. And they're all listening to him. They're all taking notes. Look, got it, got it. Globe, globals, you know, global is black, whatever it is. <laughs> And what's going to happen? Can you can, can you vaguely predict what might happen out of this conversation? They're going to go back to their fiefdoms and do whatever they damn well please. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We run it. We run into this all, all the time, and it, it's it's one of the reasons that that we really try to focus on people that have an, a P and L can actually make the decision. When you get into this, into the innovation space, you have to be very careful to make sure that they actually, to quote one of our former presidents, actually are the deciders, right? Because many, many, many times they've been giving a mission and they've been told, you know, go take that hill and they go to attack the hill and there's nobody behind them, right? I, this is a hard question. I don't even know how to frame it. How do you balance that? Because on the one hand, you know, in innovation, you know, a, a new idea, a future focused approach to, to doing something has no profit by definition, right? It's an idea. On the other hand, you know, if it's orphaned with an innovation leader or a strategy leader who has no P&L, they're not taken seriously and they have no credibility and the organization sort of spits them out. Right. So how do you how do you navigate that, I guess, you know, for your clients? Well, so the first thing that you need to realize is that the things that have ROI and the things that can produce a reliable profit number are all on the fast route to commoditization. So let that sit, right? Because anytime you've now decoded it, right? You've reduced the number of assumptions you have to make. You now have facts. You now have predictable connections between, you know, I do this here and that comes out and I spits out like a machine. But the problem is once you get to that stage, unless you have a patent or some trade secret or some secret sauce that nobody else can copy, it's now been decoded. And so you know your margins are going to get compressed. So to look for big margins, you you have to go somewhere else. And the way I like to think about that is, 
if you imagine a continuum with low uncertainty at one end, so established business, I know it, you know me, I renew my reinsurance contracts every year and I've done it for the last 40 years and I probably will for the next 40 years. Okay. Low uncertainty, that's great. And um, you know you know exactly what kind of profitability you're going to get. As uncertainty increases, now you're in the much higher return, but it's also much more uncertain. And we call this creating option value. And so when we work with our clients, we talk a lot about, yes, you've got to have the core, of course, and don't misunderstand us to think the core is not important. Of course it is. That's, that's the most important thing. If you don't get that right, nothing else really matters. But you can't just have the core. If that's all you got, you're on the road to being a commodity. So you have to prepare for the future by making small investments today, planting seeds, if you will, to get the right, but not the obligation to make a bigger decision later on. And that's the notion of option value. And when you think about it, we do this intuitively as human beings all the time. We literally plant seeds when it's time to plant seeds and harvest later. We invest in education. We invest in reading the book. We invest in listening to a great podcast. We do all kinds of things that don't have an immediate return because we know there's going to be a future benefit. So that's one of the things we really try to have companies embed. But you need a system. You need a mechanism. You can't just rely on it being one person's great idea, right? It has to be a system that is recognized, that is transparent, where people understand how they engage with it, what it means for them, where people understand the process. A lot of times the very operator type people, they don't even understand what innovation is. And so they look at it and it seems wildly undisciplined and crazy. And it, it just, it's like a foreign language. I was just at a big conference with some professional, it was a law, big law firm in this case, and I was telling them about discovering driven growth and they're looking at me as though I have three hands. It was like, <laughs> just, just like a non-communication. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Well, Rita, you've, I'm thinking about your architect's framework. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rita's done a lot of work in this, in this area of like where innovation belongs based on what you're actually trying to get done uh, as an organization. And I think a lot of organizations just absolutely get it wrong. You know, it's in the wrong place with the wrong people. And I think about my career where I've seen it work and where it's not worked is, you know, they're without that kind of like someone's clearly thought through, this is how we're going to kind of run this process. So, you know, in the early days of my career at Sony, we had, you know, an innovation team and a strategic planning team. And they kind of, they ran as a group, but highly integrated with, with the business units. They, they didn't, you know, go off and say, oh, well, we're going to go put a man on the moon when we're like, we're not in the rocket business. So there was a very deliberate process for how you thought about where you're going to explore. And, you know, they were, you know, very well aligned with many business units, right? So several business units within the organization all used this resource. And because there was this clear alignment, you got pretty good results. I mean, sometimes you got horrific results, like mini disc, <laughs> but generally you got really good results out of this group. And, you know, without that alignment, it's the whole, the whole thing is almost kind of comical. And Rhea's got a, a great series of papers, one in particular on archetypes that I think you guys would find very useful and your listeners would find incredibly useful. Yeah. So I'll quickly go through that, right? So the yeah. question is, where do you locate venturing? And there's no perfect place is the first thing I would observe. And secondly, the needs of the venture will change over its lifespan. 
So archetype one is you just stick it in the business unit. And that's the easiest, right? Oh, you know, that's Joe. He'll innovate. Just add add, add innovation to his list of things he's doing this year, right? <laughs> the trouble with it, what's Joe? Joe's a busy guy. So he's got other things. Archetype two is you create a separate unit within an established unit. And you say that's unit's job is innovation. That's better, but it still has the risk being distracted by the core business. Archetype three is stick it in some R&D type function, IT, R&D, digital transformation. The trouble there is A, you have no power and B, you can lose touch with the customer while you're chasing shiny objects. Archetype four is the one I've seen work really well. I designed this kind of system at IBM with a partnership with IBM back in the early 2000s under the Gerstner era. And this is you take a senior staff person and you put them in charge of nothing but innovation. That's their full-time job. This is a piece to the corporate jet. This is not a, a regular staffing. To someone with real power, real authority, real decision rights. I mean, you, you take senior business leaders out of their roles in their major projects. So I'm thinking of it. IBM, there was a guy named Jeff Atkin who was in charge of their Unix business. This guy had 25,000 people reporting to him. And then he was put in charge of this pervasive computing project, which we today would call Internet of Things. Big opportunity, but nobody knew what it was, but they did it right. They gave him like four analysts. So 20,000 people to four people. He reported directly to Sam Palmisano, who at the time was the president, who reported directly to Gersner. And then uh, Ralph, um, was blocking on his name, whatever else was the side guy, the, the innovation guy. And that went very well. During Gersner's time, they launched 23 of these emerging business opportunities. 18 of them went on to become billion-dollar businesses. I mean, that's a phenomenal track in innovation. So that's archetype four. Uh, archetype five is you set up a complete new ventures division. Nokia did that very famously in the 2000s. And its specific remit was to get Nokia into areas that were not represented by any of their core businesses at the time. Archetype six is it reports directly to the CEO. Now, this is good and bad. The good part is you don't tend to have too much trouble with visibility or resources if you've got the CEO's backing. The bad news is it's impossible to kill a project, which reports directly to the CEO. <laughs> the classic one would be Motorola's Iridium venture, right? Which is like the classic venture failure of all time. This was the, their effort in the 90s to circle the Earth with low Earth orbit satellites, which turned out to be really prescient, except the use case was for business people traveling, right? That they would buy these expensive phones because it would work anywhere in the world. With the exception of most large cities over, you know, <laughs> mountains, large cities, places like that. And so it was just a, it was just a, a flop. And then set the, the Archetype 7 is something I've been working on a lot recently, which I call the permissionless organization, which is innovation is actually baked into micro, like micro and macro processes throughout the company. Yeah. So there's it doesn't live in a specific spot with a specific owner. It is kind of a company asset. Jeff Bezos calls this the institutional yes, that we want to create organizations in which if you have an idea, you can get some early inexpensive money to test it out. Team boundaries can be quite fluid. Teams can form and break up as needed. You've got many teams, but they're small. At Amazon, they call them two pizza teams. And they're single-threaded, meaning I'm working on a specific problem for a specific period of time. It could be two weeks, it could be three weeks, but I've got everything on the team that I need. So I've got engineering and design and marketing and, you know, product consulting, professional services terms, it would be, you know, I've got the technical expert, I've got the marketing person, I've got the person who's in charge of client relationships, and we're all on the same team working on a specific problem. So let's say it's, I want to figure out how to allow customers to see the progress of their case on an app, right? And you'd spend two weeks doing nothing but that. Think of that in the context of a typical professional worker, you know, professional firm employee and what their day's like. In any given day, they could have 10 or 15 matters to deal with. The matters aren't on the same team with other people. So you're constantly having to kind of matrix across a group of people who aren't all aligned around doing the same thing at the same time. 
You're code switching all day long, which is A, exhausting and B, inefficient. And your calendar is just completely cluttered up with steps so you don't have any time to think. I mean, it's just a completely different way of designing organizations. And my thesis is that with the advent of technology, that you can actually use well-developed technology. Many companies don't want well-developed technology, but if you do it right, technology can substitute for what managers used to do. You know, assign tasks, manage deadlines, yeah. you know, the proverbial person walking around with a clipboard getting updates, you know, is not necessary anymore. Can we, I, I want to build on that. And then I want to talk about what you're doing to operationalize that. The uh, archetype seven is fascinating. And that, that really is the successful organization that has a culture of innovation baked into to every part of it. And the people assigned to that, that functional expertise is not there to produce something they're there to learn and inform and refine. And I think that's where, where things tend to go wrong in professional services when I, I see them, because as Jason likes to say, the firms fall in the practice, people fall in love with their solutions <laughs> instead of the client problem. And to me, that's what separates the winners from the, the losers often in these firms is they, the winners fall in love with the problem. Not their own solution. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I mean, one a very effective executive who I've worked with. One of the things he says all the time, which I love, is he says, "There's always a better option. We just haven't discovered what it is yet." Yeah. <laughs> and and in this theme of iteration is so important. I mean, Ron and I were on the phone with a prospective a client who's very innovative, and he talks about you know working on a particular thing at about the eighth iteration, and he said, "You know, in a typical firm, that's where people give up." But I don't because I've done this enough that I know that's when I'm starting to get the magic happen, right? That eighth iteration, that sixth year, that, you know, that struggle to really make something come to come to life. And then you know, you've learned so much that then your growth can be exponential. I love yeah. that. We're running out of time with you and I don't want to let you slip away without giving you a chance to tell us more about what you're doing at Valleys because I think like, I feel like I'm saying the name wrong. I apologize if I am. Because you're, you're basically building a, a set of tools and software to help companies that run discovery-driven growth to do it better. So talk to us about what you're doing and, and how it works and, and what it's all about. So sure. Well, I'll start. And then, Ron, I'd love if you would add color commentary. So Belize was really founded out of my frustration that I would get up and I'd give keynotes and I'd talk and I'd do stuff. And then the same stupid stuff would keep happening, like <laughs> talking golf for the last few minutes. And so what Belize is all about is helping you unlock the potential for innovation and transformation in your organization. And we do this through a number of different methodologies. Yeah. Um, the first is some advisory because, you know, you need some guidance to know kind of what processes to put in place. I mean, if this is all sounding completely new to you, you probably want to start with some just basic information, understand the process, maybe some workshops, you know, just kind of get the right number of people aware of how this all works, right? Just what are the mechanisms with more innovation transformation so different. The second is a software spine, which we don't envisage it being kind of a software product, but it goes really nicely with firms that are interested in building a discovery-driven plan, for example, or managing your portfolio of innovations, like just taking a snapshot. What what am I working on? How uncertain is it? What's where, you know, in my innovation process? So a really great portfolio management and planning tool, we call it the Spark Club. And that can be used in companies. It can be used for education. It can be used for training. There's a lot of different things you can do with it. And we're happy to demonstrate that. And then we have a set of online learning resources. Think of them almost like, as like Harvard Business Review, but with video explainers 
and you know text and specific articles teaching you specific things and we can put people through a training process so the vision for that is so let's say one of the checkpoints in discovery driven planning is i want to do a bunch of customer interviews but i've never been trained in how to do a customer interview so the thought is you'd open up the journal on customer interviews right or the textbook or whatever you want to do, and, and have everybody say okay everybody's going to be on this project work through that book by next Tuesday, right? And then on Wednesday, we're going to start, we're going to do some actual customer interviews. So it's not going to make you a customer interview expert overnight, but it builds capability, right? And so you're building capability step by step as you're working your way through the customer um, discovery process. And so we have 20 checkpoints that are kind of typical. And you can think of each of those checkpoints as like an article in our Harvard Business Review type online resources. I see Valise as kind of bringing... Rena's ideas to life. I mean, in many conversations with her, she'll, she says, I'll go to this speech and, you know, the scales fall from their eyes and they, people float off as butterflies. And you guys have seen this. Where I personally experienced this where, where you go to the event, you come back and you're all charged up. And then what do you do? You, you open up your, your laptop on Monday and you look at what the sales were over the weekend and what unit costs were and, and you know, how far behind target you are and all of it goes away. When we're having success, I think people are using little pieces or big chunks, depending on how the, what the problem is, of all the things that Valise is offering. And they're committed to really understanding what discovery-driven growth is all about. And I'm uh, thinking about one customer now that we've had that we've been doing some advisory work with and has been using the software now for about four or five months. And it really was about three months in when they went, oh my God, this really works, right? And and look look at the view I have on my business now. And, you know, and it's not about software. We're not a software company. It's about really starting with this, you know, I wonder if this is true, right? And then working through that whole process. It's actually quite fun when it works well. And we, we had the bad example early in the show, but the good example is a company or a business unit that gets dedicated to like, we're really going to run this process. And the output is really, really a lot of fun. The learning's incredible and they learn a new way to collaborate, a new way to work together and a new way to actually drive ROI in their projects. So, And I want to also add um, one of the things that I, I feel very is very special about Belize is so, you know, I've got all the academic articles and all that stuff, but Ron just has this incredible wealth of practical experience. So you come at it with both skill sets, which I think is unique. Ron, I'd love you to talk about that way that you've reframed that business, the guy that was selling into one sector and you told him, no, he's actually selling into a much broader sector. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for us to be having a conversation with people and say, well, you're thinking about this thing upside down, right? And Reed often reminds me that, you know, I've done the good and the bad and the ugly. <laughs> and we've kind of learned from all from from all of that. And, and quite frequently, you know, people will have things completely upside down and they have to think about it more broadly and differently. And, and using Reed as platform really helps us do that. I think one of the cool things about the platform, having seen it, and I'd like you just to talk about it before we lose you, is this idea of it lets you take a snapshot of, of like all the strategic initiatives that you have in play and it helps you see, essentially cluster them. For me, it's sort of like based on almost like a time horizon, like stuff that's kind of near and far, but it's more complex than that. So, so talk a little bit about that because I think for any organization, any firm, any client that's 
thinking about their strategic initiatives, it's sort of eye-opening to see probably where those things are clustering. And I think it's interesting to talk about that. So just tell us a little bit about that before we lose you. As I mentioned earlier, um, one of the frustrations people have is even knowing what's in your portfolio of activities, right? Yeah. So with this tool, what you do is you create a project and then you score it on various dimensions of uncertainty that based on my research, I know can either make or sink a project. And when a first project begins, we assume everything's highly uncertain. But let's say you say, okay, I think I know who the target customer is. So you move, your, you change your score or more search. Yeah. What, what it, the system allows you to do is capture why you thought that, right? So what was the evidence that you used to make that judgment? And you capture that in the system. So six months later, back to this issue of we forget our assumptions, six months later, if I want to know why you thought you knew who the customer was, I can go back and I can actually ascertain whether your source made sense or not. Like, like was it a, you know, I talked to my buddy, Joe, he said he liked it. Zero points. Like, no, <laughs> you don't yeah. Get that. Yeah. Yeah, I got an order from a customer and they're paying $5,000 for me to be in the first customer set. Yay. Okay. That I buy, right? Because now the customers made a commitment to doing business. So that the where the project is in that portfolio is a function of the answer to these 43 questions that have to do with market uncertainty. So who's going to buy it? How do I get to them? What price? And technological or capability uncertainty. Can I do this thing? Can I get the needed skills? Can I hire the right? And what you should see is most projects begin kind of in my world in the upper right where it's high uncertainty on most dimensions. And as you're learning, you can watch the uncertainty come down. You can watch the projects make progress. Bunch of other things you can do. You can find out which projects haven't made progress. You can find out which projects are supposed to be mission critical, but nobody's actually working on them, which happens a surprising amount of time. You can ascertain which projects really need to be accelerated, which ones, you know, with a bit of a push could actually be material in a short term period of time. So there's a lot of things you can do, but it has to be visible first. And the way most yeah. companies do it right now, it's in Excel spreadsheets. And, you know, you ask for a problem status update and some poor intern is running around 24-7 asking every individual person who touched that thing where it is now. It just, just it's, it's not very um, practical to run things that way. Highly inefficient. We need to wrap. Well, first off, thank you so much for your time. I, you know, it was really great to have you on the podcast. I think there was just so many great lessons learned for professional services firms of all types. If a listener wants to reach, you know, Rita, you or Ron, what's the best way to do that? Well, Valise.com will find us. The email growth at Valise will get picked up by our team and they'll relay messages to us. And of course, I have a website, readingthegrowth.com that you can visit. That has archives, what I call bot sparks, which are articles I regularly write. And free resources, you're welcome to check it out. Yes, everyone should check out readamagrath.com. There's a massive amount of free resources there. Look <laughs> back, I mean, over a decade, I believe, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of articles that we published. So it's uh, valise with a Z.com. And the best way to reach us is just click on any of those little happy buttons and we'll be happy to hop on a Zoom with you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It was really, really great. I really appreciate your insights and, and just I just appreciate your contribution to the world of business in general around thank you know, you. Dis discovery during growth. I mean, it's a big deal and it's been it really is. helpful for a lot of Maybe companies. Maybe it's time has finally come. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Go, go, go.